Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Scott Kaufman. Scott Kaufman is a cognitive scientist who has taught courses on intelligence, creativity, and well-being at Columbia University, NYU, the University of Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. He's the host of the Psychology Podcast, and in 2015, he was named one of the 50 groundbreaking scientists who are changing the way we see the world by Business Insider. Scott and I talk about his background as a learning disabled child and internet hacker. We talk about the psychology of victimhood and trauma. We talk about dark empaths, mindfulness meditation, spiritual narcissism, psychedelics, free will and its implications for praise and blame, and the benefits of adversity. So without further ado, Scott Kaufman. Okay, Scott Kaufman. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Coleman, it's great to chat with you again. Yeah. It's been a while since we've uh, hung out, since, since before the pandemic. We, we used to get lunch sometimes and talk about a wide variety of subjects at, at Columbia. So it's nice to get to see your face again, hear your voice. Really nice. I'm really proud of you, by the way. I'm really proud of, of how much you've, uh, you've accomplished in just the past couple of years. Thank you. I appreciate that. So your, your work ranges over a lot of different topics within psychology. And so let's just start with a little bit about you before we get to our topics of mutual interest. How did you come to, to be a psychologist? Yeah, it's a good question. How does, how does one become anything? You know, I, I guess, uh, because I'm a, my training is in cognitive science. So I'm really interested in like the mind and the brain and, and intelligence and differences among people. And those interests did show themselves really early when I was a little kid. I, I remember just like being really confused, uh, looking even on the playground, like how come this person can so effortlessly um, do that move on the jungle gym and it takes me so long to do that move. I remember just thinking these things like just at age five, you know, as early as can be, just why are people so different from each other? And um, I had some terrible early childhood ex- educational experiences um, that really uh, made me think that our education system wasn't really getting the best out of all students. And so that primed me as well. You know, I'm trying to think of all the things that primed the pump, you know, <laughs> and, and it's funny because we, as we try to think of this, we're just telling a story. So I don't know if any of this is, is actually the causal reason why I became a psychologist. But, you know, as a kid, I just really, um, these interests showed up early. I became really fascinated with wanting to humiliate things. Like, I feel like my, I remember there was a story when I was really young, my parents, uh, my mom, sorry, not my parents, my mom and my grandma were fighting in the front of the car and I was sitting in the back seat. And I think one of the first, this is one of the first times I ever spoke. And I said, can you both be quiet? Mom, this is what grandma's trying to say. And then I would say to my turn, my grandma say, this is what my mom's trying to say. And they both were like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> like, I think I might've been five or six or so. And that happened. So, you know, I don't know these, these things, I feel like the seeds were there when I was young. And then 
when I, when I was in college and I discovered there was a whole field of cognitive science, I fell in love with it. I really fell in love with it and um, haven't really looked back since. So as a kid, you were categorized as learning disabled, right? Um, as a kid, I was, uh, I was diagnosed with a learning disability called central auditory processing disorder because I had a lot of fluid in my ears the first couple of years of my life. It made it very hard for me to hear things in real time. So what was that experience like? I mean, if you, your memories probably are, are distorted by time, but can, can you talk a little bit more, uh, more about what that was like? Sure. I mean, I, I definitely, I, I repeated third grade. I remember being bullied a lot when I repeated third grade and kids would call me all sorts of names in like the bathroom and stuff like, cause they could, they couldn't comprehend how a student, you know, would have to repeat third grade. I mean, I felt really stupid to have to repeat third grade. I'm like, it's only third grade and I couldn't handle, couldn't handle fucking third grade. So that yeah. was, uh, that was, that wasn't good. <laughs> um, uh, my, you know, my self-esteem was, was pretty, pretty low there as, as a kid. And I felt uh, confused, really legit confused. Cause I also felt like I was capable of more intellectual challenges. And I was an extremely curious kid and, and I would come home and do things um, that were very nerdy that I felt like, you know, I, I had to keep it myself. Like I, I got interested in like computers. I became like a hacker, you know, like in, in my room, you know, like when I was like 12 years old, I became like a, a world famous hacker. Actually, I don't tell that story really? to too many Wait, people. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't tell think you've many. told me this before. Well, I try not to talk about it okay, too well, much. You have to say more about that then. <laughs> I, um, what I, did you hack? Well, okay. I'll t- this might be beyond your comprehension because of your age, but there was something mm-hmm. back in the day called BBSs, bulletin board systems. This is pre-internet. This is pre-internet. And, um, and you could, um, and there was something called shareware, which were like um, games for free, like Wolfenstein 3D, like the original Wolfenstein 3D and stuff like that. But I like put up a bulletin board system where I put up, I pirated games. So people from all over the world came to my bulletin board system and, uh, downloaded my games for free that you should have paid for. So yeah, it was definitely illegal. Um, but I, I, I ended up having one of like becoming really like world renowned for uh, my handle was the wizard. And, uh, and I would have people from over the world, like calling into my bulletin board system and not knowing that a 12 year old, like kid in special ed <laughs> was running it. <laughs> so wow. that was a big deal for me. I, I loved it. And it gave me the only thing that gave me a sense of like self-efficacy. Um, in my life, but I, I was really confused that that duality, that dual identity, because I, I did feel like I was capable of more intellectual challenges, but I, I felt like the, the teachers didn't really give me much of a chance. So were, were the adults aware that your mind was fundamentally sound and, and it was just a problem with your hearing or did they treat it as, you know, in that sense, were you different from many other kids with learning disabilities where the problem was not simply a matter of you know, just not being able to hear well, but there's a deeper you know, neurological dysfunction or, or something like that. Or were you treated the same as I was as treated the other? same. I was treated yeah. the same. I mean, they, they sorted us all, they put us all, you know, all wide variety of things. I mean, there are people with all sorts, there are, there are a lot of kids. See, the thing is there are a lot of kids with behavioral problems who are put in the same special ed with me. So they would bully me. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, thanks guys. <laughs> Thanks for putting, putting me right with my bullies. Like, you know, like, right, like, right. so that was really frustrating. Um, I, I was really frustrated, Coleman. I really, I felt as though I, not only was I capable more, but I felt like a lot of my friends in special ed were capable more and I wanted to advocate for them. Um, I also, mm-hmm. most of my friends, you know, by the end of middle school and, and high school, most of my friends were actually in gifted education just because of my nerdy interests in computers. And in fact, mm-hmm. this is actually a story I tell in my book on gifted. Uh, my freshman year of college, I was like really 
well known among all the gifted kids as the, the like, that the wizard was coming to this high school because I was like famous as a hacker, you know, and and it made me feel so good because even though I was still in special ed, just just for the one semester still in, in high school, um, like the gifted kids and others would pass by me in the hall and be like, oh, my God, are you the wizard? You know. And that made me feel really good. So anyway, I haven't told some of these stories before. So, well, that's yeah. So it seems like hacking helped you develop a sense of pride in your own ability to learn things and do something that required intelligence. Oh, absolutely. And then eventually I was able to add on a computer science degree as an undergrad, uh, as a double major, but, but yeah, it, it absolutely did. It, it was my, it was only, it was like my secret way of having any self-efficacy you know, mm. I think you see that a lot with people, with kids who um, feel a fundamental se- lack of self-efficacy. Um, they might uh, get up to different roots of crime. I mean, my route was just white collar, but, you know, people, you could easily, I easily, I could have been a drug dealer or, you know, all sorts of things. And that's why I try to have a lot of compassion for, for people in the lives that they've led under certain circumstances, you know? Sure. So there's a lot of things we can talk about here. You've done a lot of work trying to explain both the dark side of the human mind and the potential for self-actualization and happiness. And I find both of those to be very interesting things to talk about. So I guess let's first start with, with the darkness, uh, with the, the dark side of human psychology here. You had a recent blog post that I found very interesting about the mindset of victimhood. Recent may have been many months ago, actually. And I think this is a, it's a topic I've dealt with a little bit, certainly in the context of politics and the style of engaging in politics that centers one's lived experience as a victim of X, Y, or Z. But I want to start by divorcing the conversation from politics entirely and just talk about the mindset of victimhood in general as it manifests interpersonally over issues between people that have nothing to do with politics, right? Just the, the tendency of a person to dwell on the bad things that have happened to them to need an apology and how much that varies between people. So can you talk a little bit about what drew you to that uh, topic for a blog post? Sure. Well, I am very yeah. interested in this topic. I even, I'm contemplating even writing a book about it. It seems mm-hmm. like uh, it's very relevant to lots of things going on in the world today. The, my interest in it um, stemmed from my earlier work that I've been doing the past uh, six, seven years on a trait called vulnerable narcissism that I became captivated with and just absolutely fascinated by. Uh, and I, I even started to recognize some of those own characteristics in myself from my youth. You know, like, like those hacker days, like, I feel like I was totally a vulnerable narcissist. Can, can you define that? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll definitely yeah. define it. Um, so vulnerable narcissism um, includes, or, or so the, people talk about narcissism and, and, and the core to all types of narcissism is a sense of entitlement. That's kind of the thread that runs through all forms of narcissism. But you can actually distinguish between two major flavors of narcissism. Um, which depend on different modifiers. So one is the grandiose kind of narcissism that most people think of. Like when I say narcissist, you probably are thinking of the grandiose narcissist, mm-hmm. the chest thumping, I'm the greatest kind of narcissist. Yeah, I think of like Kanye or something. Yeah, actually I'd argue Kanye is more vulnerable. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, 
But the vulnerable narcissist is, uh, or the person who scores very high in vulnerable narcissism, they don't feel like they're entitled because they think they're superior to others. They think they're entitled to special privileges because they've suffered. Mm-hmm. So it's a different kind of the source of entitlement or the reason why one feels entitled. In fact, a lot of people with high vulnerable narcissism can score very low in self-esteem uh, questionnaires. Um, they, they'll often report having a very uncertain self-esteem that's very dependent on the validation of others. Uh, whereas grandiose narcissists will tend to uh, report more of, I don't give a fuck about others, you know, or I don't care about it. I don't care what people think of me. I'm the greatest, you know, whereas people who score high in vulnerable narcissism care very much about the validation of others and um, feel entitled to the, that attention um, because they feel like they've been wronged in their past. So I've been really just fascinated with this in the clinical psychology literature. I mean, I, I, I've been doing research on this just completely separate from everything, like the culture wars, separate from politics, separate from everything, just from a purely uh, personality perspective. Like, how can we measure this trait? Um, what does it predict? I wrote a paper showing that the kinds of narcissists that end up on the clinician's couch are those with high vulnerable narcissism, not grandiose narcissism. The grandiose narcissists aren't going and seeking out therapists. But- the person who scores high in vulnerable narcissism really has a lot of mental health issues. So there's a real mental health uh, issue at play here that, that is important. You know, if we want to help people, care about people, um, we need to kind of uh, talk about this openly, openly and honestly. So once I started seeing some of this newer research, um, especially this research done on uh, victimhood as a, as a trait, as a, like an interpersonal trait that people might have um, like generalized across contexts in their lives, just like extroversion might be a trait. Like inter- victimhood might be a trait. You know, I reached out to the researchers and uh, and said, "Well, what do you think about the link between this and vulnerable narcissism?" And you know, we all kind of agreed that it's uh, we're tapping to a very similar construct. Um, there's something very similar going on there. So I've become really interested in this and trying to figure out how we can move people from this state that we know is 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 only going to lead down to the path of of mental health issues to a path where. Um, we can curb that and let them have the mindsets and skills and um, perceptions of the world and themselves that allow them to grow and to have resiliency and to um, be able to deal with threats in the world, not convince themselves they can't deal with threats. So uh, I'll pause there and and see how some of that lands with you. Yeah, I find this to be fascinating as well. And, and again, we we can talk about how that intersects with our political culture in a moment. But completely aside from that. I've always been very interested in how two people can have a very similarly traumatic experience, the same flavor of experience where something horrible happens to them. But one person will react by really fixating on that as as the landmark event of their life, right? And just create a whole identity based around the fact of their own victimhood. And then another person will react in what seems to me a far more healthy way by obviously processing the trauma, you know, by talking about it, however long that takes and certainly having no illusions that, that they haven't been victimized, right? Really dealing with it and experiencing the pain and the grief, whatever it is. But then really not incorporating it into their identity at all, right? And I'm, I'm fascinated by what it is about a person that leads them to take either 
of those paths. Me too. Absolutely. Me too. Especially like, I mean, I thought about this stuff my whole early childhood. I was only, I was the only one in my entire school district's history to break out of special ed. Like there's never been a student who himself or herself said, I'm out. <laughs> like, like, you know, I'm, uh, and, and that's what I did. I, I set up a, a meeting with a school psychologist. This was my freshman year of high school. I did have a special ed teacher take me aside and ask me why I was still there, um, which did um, inspire me to be like, yeah, why am I still here? It's a good question. But I, you know, I set up a meeting with, with, with the whole administrators and, we're, and, and I told them, I was like, I think I'm, I'm capable of more. And they said, we have nothing in our rule book. Another way of framing that is like, we have nothing in our rule book that gives you a route to not be a victim. <laughs> like, I'm just trying to put that in the, in the, in the language of, of our conversation right now. Because I was like, thinking back to the attitude I had, I was like, screw this. I'm not going to be a victim of this, of this past. And, and so I've been thinking about these issues quite, quite dramatically and try to think what are the personality moderators? What are the life circumstances that, that can help distinguish this? But I would say just at the most base, simplest level, I think that our cultural narratives can reward victimhood and also just ignore the fact and don't teach kids that there is a, a way out of it. And, and I think that's a big part of it. You know, I think that if I was, you know, taught more, you know, I probably would have gone out more before ninth grade. Like if this teacher, you know, even just questioned to me earlier than ninth grade, why, why are you still here? Like why, um, you know, what? Have you have you thought about whether you want to still stay here, um, or whether it's still helping you or, or contributing to your growth? I think I would have been inspired earlier than ninth grade to to want to get out. And no one's no one's just really asking that question of like, are you sure you still want to be here because there's a path out? Yeah, yeah. I think it's you know this is something I definitely noticed, especially at Columbia and and Barnard, and many similar spaces. I think across the country is that just like many places in the world have an honor culture that can look strange from the outside, but has its own internal logic, uh, the, the way status is doled out based on a very particular sense of what it means to be honorable. We have a culture of victimhood where status is doled out on the basis of how plausibly you can claim to be a victim of pernicious forces like racism, sexism, homophobia, and so forth. And uh, it's, it's something you can just feel intuitively in the social fabric of certain subcultures like Ivy League schools and, and so forth. And what it does is, I mean, it, it seems to me it puts a premium. So, so the type of person who already has that personality, that psychological trait, it means they can do very well in that subculture by just ratcheting that up to 10. And there's really no counterforce. There's no incentive for them to, to look inward and try to change that aspect of themselves because it works or it's well-received. Yeah. It's a great point. It's a really great point. And I've also just been trying to think of like, how do we have a little more nuance in these discussions where we hold two things in our head at one time, which is, yeah, racism and sexism and white supremacy, these things exist. But on the other hand, um, say, I'm not going to be a victim of racism, sexism, and white supremacy. See, it's like, how can we have both of those truths at the same time? What I've been trying to really do is uh, is have a little more 
dichotomy transcendence, as I call it, which is a phrase uh, my hero, Abraham Maslow, I'm sure we'll talk about a lot, is, you know, how can we kind of transcend some of these false dichotomies? Because that's a, you know, like, because every time someone says, I'm not a victim of sexism, they're not saying, I am making the claim that sexism doesn't exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And, right. but why are we not, why, why is that always the inference? It's a, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, I have, um, I've experienced racism in, in, I've, I've mentioned some experiences I've had on this podcast before. And the, the feeling I generally have in those moments is pretty similar to road rage. It's like when you've, when someone has just cut you off or feel like, you know, they've put you in danger or, or kind of a car almost hits you. I get this overwhelming feeling of rage that is also tied up with a kind of typically masculine sense of not wanting to be dominated by another person. And, and also together with a sense of being falsely accused, right? Well, you feel a personal injustice. Yes. So Yet it never occurs to me once that feeling dies away, once I'm no longer in the situation, to blow up that experience to such, such a size in my mind that it becomes who I am, right? Like it becomes important to me that it happened. There are people for whom it's true to say they wouldn't know who they, be, who, who, who they were Without it. absent some experience of victimhood. Whereas it seems to me you could take away the, the few racist incidents in my life and I would be just the same. Right. And I, I do think that is, so, so do you just see that as a personality trait akin to extroversion or introversion where it's probably just a consequence of a bit of genes, a bit of environment and, or like how, how does, what are the predictors of, of that kind of personality trait? Well, I think it's important to recognize that even personality traits can change and, and at different times in our lives, um, they might serve us as defense mechanisms. Um, other times in our life, they may no longer serve us and it's, an, it's important to change them. Um, I just view tra- traits as uh, an average of our states. You know, mm-hmm. they're not, uh, you know, if you, if you have the trait of extroversion, it doesn't mean you're always an extrovert. It means that you tend to be more extroverted on average than someone who's less extroverted. Um, so with just, uh, just that primer, <laughs> a little primer out of the way. I do think that, there are some dispositions and tendencies towards the trait of vulnerable narcissism that is influenced by both genetics and the environment that can uh, influence that tendency, but that one can override it and one can change in their course of their lives through mindfulness meditation, through aware, deep awareness of their patterns of behavior. Um, and through habit change. I, I, I think it's, it's possible. The problem is that a lot of people who score high in these traits aren't aware of it. Um, they're not accepting of it as something that maybe is not good for their well-being or the well-being of others. But I do think that there, is a, uh, there, there are some dispositional aspects here that relate to the narcissism construct. It relates to the entitlement construct. It relates to the, um, the feeling of personal injustice. Um, it's really interesting that um, you know, you, you, you brought up that feeling of rage in, in that way. And, and, uh, and, and actually narcissism research shows that people who score high narcissism questionnaires tend to be 
much more angry at personal injustices than they are about injustices among people who are not in their in-group. But even more so than that, it's not just not in their in-group, but the farther they're away from them, they can relate to them in terms of their own self. So the extent to which it's very self-related. So someone else like, like, let's say, you know, I'm uh, like, like talking to someone who looks exactly like me, like in the most extreme case, acts exactly like me. And I'm score very high in narcissism. I'll really like this person. <laughs> I'll be like, I, I like this cat, you know, without like being aware of why, you know, if it's a very self-unaware narcissist, they won't be aware. Well, obviously you do because this person is, a, it feels like an extension of your own self. Um, so if anything happens to this person who looks just like you, who are, you feel a great affinity for, but you don't know, why do I have such an affinity? It's because you're a narcissist and this person is an extension of yourself. Um, but if an injustice happens to that person, you will get just as mad as if injustice happens to you because it's, it's a personal injustice. But the more that with, with the person who scores high in this disposition, the more or the less like, less like that person is to you. So the more they become in your outgroup or the more you perceive them to be in your outgroup, you actually could be more likely to have the opposite of empathy, you know, and, and not only not feel a sense of injustice when they're being hurt, but to promote injustice against the person who's in your outgroup. Hmm. I'm trying to, I'm trying to choose my words very carefully. So I'm being clear in my point, but I hope that made sense. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, This relates to another blog post you wrote about the notion of a dark empath. Can you talk about that a bit? What's a dark empath? People love the dark shit. (laughs) All my my interviews are like, let's start with the dark stuff because the (laughs) happiness shit is boring as fuck. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm interested in it all. You know what I mean? Like I love it all. Yeah. So um, the dark empath is is an interesting personality trait uh, juxtaposition. Have you heard of the empath, like the person who says like, oh, I'm such an empath, you know, Mm -hmm. like I really, um, there are people who self-identify as empaths. Interestingly enough, and and there are people who score high in empathy. I'm not trying to say like, I'm not trying to be hyper cynical and say like everyone who thinks, who says, thinks they're good is really bad. Like that's, that's extreme. But when I'm, I'm making the case that researchers have studied this interesting juxtaposition of people a subset of people who self-identify as empaths who um, score high in self-report measures of empathy. So they're like, yeah, I'm empathetic. But it, it's actually more a narcissistic thing. It's more that um, they score high in questionnaires that say like, I'm the most empathetic. Or I, it, it's really just narcissism in different clothes. It's saying, oh, I'm the greatest at bringing around about world change. Like no one else but me like that's an item on the questionnaire, like me and me alone, I and I alone will change the world for the better because I'm an empath. Those who score very high in those traits um, have this kind of dark empath thing where, you know, they, they may not see it in themselves, just how narcissistic they're being, but you'll see it because their overconfidence usually leads to great destruction. You know, usually the consequences aren't great from people who, uh, who think like that. So... Your claim here is not that anyone who self-identifies as an empath is a dark empath. Correct. Your claim is or those who score high in empathy. Yeah. They're, because those who score high in, in, in empathy, the, the juxtaposition of traits there is they, they, there's a certain constellation of personality where they'll score high in those empathy questionnaires, but they also will score mm-hmm. high in a measure called like collective narcissism, which I was just talking mm-hmm. about, which is right. items such as I and only I will save the world. Um, um, I'm the greatest at being kind to others. <laughs> you know, like I'm yeah. the greatest at being kind. You know, 
Um, so it's a very specific uh, constellation. I, I want to be clear. I'm not, I, again, I'm not being, that'd be too cynical to say everyone who scores high in an empathy questionnaire is really a dark motherfucker. Like I'm not right. saying that, but do you, you do see what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Am I allowed so, to curse on your podcast? Uh, yes, but you have to pay me a hundred dollars for everyone. That's a bit vulnerably narcissistic. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. So, okay, let's, let's take a U-turn and talk about the positive psychology movement. Can, can you talk a little bit about the origins of this movement? Because it's something that has, uh, has only really come on the scene recently, I think, in the West at least. We've been far more focused on the dark side of the human mind in psychology than on the possibility of becoming much happier. So can you talk a little bit about the history of how positive psychology sort of cropped up? Sure. Um, you know, the, the, the precursor of positive psychology was really humanistic psychology, which is a really interesting, uh, really cool field in the 50s and 60s that I uh, really resonated with, uh, which was an attempt at uh, countering the ideas of people like Freud um, who believed we're all we are are destructive and sexual impulses underneath everything. The behaviorists who said that we're just uh, rats in a in in a maze, you know, or a, a box. Uh, and the humanistic psychologist said there's more to humans. There's a, there's goodness. There's spirituality. There are higher values. There's a higher consciousness that can be goal directed and intentional, and we can lead the kind of lives we want to lead. Also, responsibility taking was a big theme of the humanistic psychologist. So that, that's the precursor to modern day positive psychology. But Martin Seligman, in particular, in, in 1998, when he was president of the American Psychological Association, um, made a call for a new field, the science of well-being, and he called it positive psychology. And it, it spurred uh, a whole field of, and lots of research in the field to look at and putting uh, on a scientific foundation lots of different aspects of understanding uh, well-being and well-being is a large umbrella. Well-being doesn't just include happiness. Well-being includes meaning in life. It includes positive relationships. It includes uh, engagement in your life and a sense of purpose, um, transcendence. So, so well-being is a very broad construct, but people working in the field of positive psychology are really interested in scientifically testing interventions to improve these things and to understand these things. If you sell stuff online, you're in the right business. More people are shopping online than ever before. That means a lot of orders coming in and a lot of orders you'll need to ship out fast. That's why online sellers need ShipStation. No matter how much you sell, ShipStation makes it easy to manage and ship all your orders from all your sales channels faster, cheaper, and more efficiently. With ShipStation, you can automate just about any shipping task, so you can spend less time on shipping and more time on growing your business. No matter where you're selling, Amazon, Etsy, your own website, ShipStation funnels all your orders into one simple interface that you can manage from anywhere, even your cell phone. You'll even get access to amazing discounts with major carriers including UPS, FedEx, and USPS. You can easily compare carriers and choose the best solution every time. With ShipStation, small businesses can now access the same rates usually reserved for Fortune 500 companies, without the contracts or commitments. Use my offer code Coleman to get a 60-day free trial. That's two months free of no-hassle, stress-free shipping. Just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in Coleman. That's ShipStation.com, enter offer code Coleman. 
So the aspect that I'm most familiar from with from experience is mindfulness meditation. It's it's something I've spent a lot of time doing, and I've talked I talked about with Sam Harris a few episodes ago. Is is have you done mindfulness meditation at all? Um, I have. I, I'm I'm very into mind. Don't you see the That's cushion? Right. Don't you see the cushion right there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Anyone yeah. could put up a cushion, but um, <laughs> but no, I I I I'm very much into my into mindfulness meditation. Mm. Um, and uh, increasingly so in 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 the world we're living in, especially as I like, I feel like I'm becoming more of a, I don't know if you've noticed this too, as you become more of a public figure that you need to up your meditation <laughs> numbers. Yeah. Up your dose. I, I, yeah. I have found that to be the case in my own life just in the, mm. in the past year or so. I feel like, cause I'm just not staying necessarily to the kinds of topics and things that, that I used to stay only to, mm. to just expand a bit and even get into the culture wars a bit. You know, I feel like I have to up my meditation, but no, I, I, I definitely uh, think it can be extraordinarily helpful in seeing the one's mind accurately. Uh, but I think that um, people, a lot of people claim a lot of benefits from it that aren't scientifically validated. And, mm. and not only that, but I, I wrote an article. I don't know if you read this article I wrote on spiritual narcissism. Did you read that? No, no, I didn't, but I'm interested. What is that? Yeah. So I wrote this article um, summarizing a lot of recent research um, showing that a lot of people um, in, the, in the spiritual realm who have a lot of mindfulness meditation and yoga uh, practice um, they can start to um, have the I'm in more enlightened than you effect mm -hmm. where they start to act as though they're, uh, they're above other humans in some sort of superiorly narcissistic sort of way because they, they have that experience. And um, I tried to argue against that and argue that's not, that's, that's not the point of meditation. <laughs> you know, med meditation, it, like it's good enough for me if meditation is allowing me to just see myself more clearly or even just real to realize I don't even have a self, you know. But just to just to um, become more uh, in touch um, with this, the reality of of my thoughts and uh, my patterns of thoughts and um, and just how much I'm being led by them when I am unthinking about it. To me, that's good enough, you know. But people are claiming all sorts of benefits from mindfulness. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember at the end of one of my retreats, one that was particularly difficult. I think it was like seven or eight days, and. Uh, they, they asked that you give up your phone, but I couldn't do it. And my, my whole experience was, it was very useful, but it was extremely difficult. And I remember coming away from it thinking not that I was more enlightened, but just astounded at how difficult it was for me to not have a thought for even 10 seconds, right? The, the sense was I'm, I'm now noticing more and more how terrible I am at this skill, this skill that I know is, is very useful. But I remember at the end of the retreat, once we could talk again, uh, I had a conversation with this woman and she said, she said, wow, I feel, she said something along the lines of, I feel like I'm amazing at doing this and I can't believe that other people can't do this. And I came away, I remember I said to her, really, I feel the exact opposite. I feel now more than ever how astoundingly average and mundane my own mind is. I completely so, agree. I would even go so far and say like, if, if I meditate long enough, I think to myself, my gosh, you're really pathetic. <laughs> yeah. Like you can't, 
you can't like follow a, a darn train of thought for more than like six seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. Even after eight days of doing it, you know, so that uh, what, what I've come away with from mindfulness meditation is just a, a more sort of crystal clear perception of my own, you know, my own averageness, you know, the, just noticing the thoughts that enter your head and how they're, the vast majority of them are not intelligent or wise or profound. They're just completely mundane. Oh, I'm bored. I'm hungry. You know, just, or just rehearsing social situations. Oh, I should have said this then. That would have been amazing. Or, you know, just, just the total automaticity of your own mind. So, but, but I think certainly people do become, people get pretty into themselves over mindfulness. On the other hand, I do think some people, like any skill, some people get so good at it that if they're just honestly reporting how good at it they are, they can sound like a narcissist, right? Like if LeBron James honestly describes how good he is at basketball without a shred of inflating the truth, he just sounds like an asshole, but he's just being correct, right? So I I think there have to be some people like that and to distinguish them from the, you know, how does one distinguish someone who really has mastered the skill from someone who is just deluding themselves and engaging in this spiritual narcissism? You know, it's a really good question. And not only that, but how, you know, what if there is someone authentically, as there are in this world, people who are enlightened to a, to a very high degree? I mean, they are. They legit are. Just like you said, there LeBron exists. There are people who legit are enlightened. But the point is, you know, by it's like saying also, well, there do, there exist geniuses, you know, that exists. But the point is, these are in, being a genius is very rare. Uh, it's quite likely you're not the genius. It's quite likely you're not the enlightened one. But, but those who do exist and those who, you know, I think the Dalai Lama is at this very high state, like legit high state of consciousness, of, of awareness, of compassion. When I listen to him talk, I don't, I don't get narcissistic vibes, but I want him to be awesome. I want him to not shy away from being awesome. I want him to own it. I want him to like, you know, strut down the runway <laughs> Sorry, but, you know, with confidence, you know, um, that's, you know, so I want that in certain people, but, um, I think that, you know, for most of us, I think we need, um, we need great humility. If we, if we think that two or three weeks of a silent retreat, that's more, that's more what I'm challenging. You know, the what you know, the ones that like, you know, like a month they've meditated using Sam Harris's app or something. And then they'll say, now I'm enlightened. <laughs> now I'm, you know, the supreme leader. And then they start a cult, whatever. But that's more of what I'm challenging. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, sure. What about psychedelics? What role do you think psychedelics should play in self-actualization? I'm becoming increasingly interested in this. And I sure wish Abraham Maslow was still alive and I could have a conversation with this about, uh, about uh, have a conversation with him about this because he was very critical of psychedelics and as a, as a method for self-actualization. He had, uh, people had written him letters. I have the letters saved. Um, I was able to track them down where, where people would ask his advice. But like, do you think, you know, Professor Maslow, do you think I should use psychedelics for uh, my self-actualization? And he would say, well, would you want to take a elevator to the top of Mount Everest? <laughs> Is what he would say in response oh, to that. That's funny. Um, 
And but my own thinking about it as I'm seeing more and more research on the topic, as and as a scientist, I, I have to be influenced by evidence. I I don't I can't be influenced just by my own like personal opinion. Like Scott, what do you feel in your gut? No, like I have to actually go by evidence. And the the more and more evidence is piling up right now is astounding on this topic and becoming and painting a quite clear picture that psychedelics properly administered and and healthfully integrated with other spiritual practices. So for instance, the, a really cool new study came out showing um, the use of psychedelics in combination with prayer, mindfulness, um, other forms of spiritual practices together packed a really powerful punch in uh, predicting well-being, decreasing depression, mm-hmm. a lot of th- things that we want out of our lives. I think there's a distinction that should be drawn between LSD and mushrooms on the one hand and MDMA on the other hand, they're sometimes spoken of as a group, but LSD and, and mushrooms, they really give you the, you know, they can take you to heaven or hell in, and they can, they also just deeply change your perception of the world, right? You can have deeply strange experiences that actually can't be put into language on these drugs. And that makes them in my mind, riskier psychologically, right? You're, you're sort of gambling with a few hours of your own mind. So it can also make it put you more risk for psychosis and for being severely disconnect from the world. I mean, I'll, I'll uh, example, I, you know, I, I was fasting from a psychological perspective to watch, you know, the, uh, uh, what was the, the, uh, insurrection, you know, on Capitol Hill or whatever, Mm. whatever you want to call it. It it wasn't good what happened. And, and that the shaman, you know, and I watched that shaman, you know, screaming, you know, like, oh, we're taking over the Capitol. Like, I'm sure in his head, he's the most enlightened, you know, you know, from all the drugs he's taken, you know, he's learned the truth, a deep truth about the world. But, but to me, I was seeing someone out of touch with the reality, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've told this story in the podcast before, but the, the last time I did LSD several years ago, I essentially had the experience of what I imagine paranoid schizophrenia to be. I convinced myself completely that one of my best friends was trying to murder me. And so subjectively, it just felt like I was the protagonist of a horror movie for several hours. I'm sorry. That must have been scary. Oh yeah, it was terrifying. And, And it's difficult. I think people who have never had a bad trip don't necessarily understand that there's actually not very much you can do to completely prevent it. Like once the door opens to a bad trip, you can do everything right, have the proper set and setting, and still you're you're gambling in some sense. So it, it's always worth issuing that caveat to people who who are thinking of of trying these substances. If you feel like you can't can't give your mind if you feel like you're just barely holding on to the rails of your own sanity, right? Then this may not be the thing for you. Which is why I, I tend to recommend MDMA much more readily with, with of course, the caveat that, that it actually is neurotoxic at some dosage and taken, taken frequently, unlike LSD and shrooms. But MDMA is really the, the one drug I've done where I can honestly say I felt that it made me a better version of myself after the effects wore off. And, and when, I've, when I've seen some of the research come out about veterans with PTSD doing MDMA-assisted therapy and 
the, I don't know if you've paid much attention to this, this research, but you know, it, it makes perfect sense to me how a drug like MDMA, if you use it to discuss the most troubling aspects of your own life, even with a friend, um, and, and even better with, with a professional, how you can make really months or years of progress towards understanding your own hangups in the course of a few hours. And that sounds, that sounds like a crazy thing to say until you've experienced it. But that, that has been my, and and several of my friends experience with, with MDMA. So is that something you pay attention to much or? Yeah, I'm really interested in, in this, but I'm also interested in thinking farther ahead at the ethical implications of this, as well as the philosophical implications, quite frankly, I'm, I'm really interested in um, like the free will debate, you know, and I'm really interested in uh, implications um, for our justice system. And, you know, I don't know if we want to take it here uh, all of a sudden, we want to open that gate of consciousness, but like, what if you, we, we have a system where uh, certain kinds of offenders actually are, are quite well treated by MDMA. Like, like Mm -hmm. they become a really completely different person in a lot of ways, their morality and their, their moral uh, desires what sort of justification do we have to give them their sort of just desserts as the phrase goes in the philosophy, philosophy literature? Um, what, you know, what sort of, you know, is that the kind of justice system we want? You know, um, do we want to, uh, rehabilitate people and integrate them into society as quick as possible? And with these kinds of methods like MDMA that may increase that lag time, you know, towards which someone could be reintegrated, I think it's going to raise all sorts of uh, interesting questions in the justice system. I'm just wondering if you thought that thought about that or if that interests you at all, this topic. I think that's fascinating. I mean, there, there's something very appealing about that idea. Well, you know, even so the, the one thought experiment is just to, to just imagine a drug that just completely reliably cures any kind of malevolence in someone. It could just cure psychopathy. I have the strong intuition and I think, I mean, I think many people do that if that drug existed, the you know prison should not exist right we should just give that drug to people who commit crimes because you know in any kind of consequentialist framework you just are making the the right choice um although i i'm sure there are some people that still have the intuition that people simply deserve to be punished if they've done a bad thing full stop regardless of what alternatives are available but I mean, if, if it's not like, you know, like with the whole free will debate, it's not like people are actually responsible ultimately for any of the things they've done. Like everything, even the people who've done bad things, you can trace the causal chain back far beyond their own existence. You yeah. know, it's I've tough. always had that intuition. I, I remember when I was a, when I was a teenager and I was winning awards for my jazz trombone playing, there was a, I remember one Thanksgiving where my dad praised me for my latest award and said I should feel proud. And I don't know, I actually thought about it and I, I didn't really understand why I should feel proud. And I had a bit of an argument with him about it. And, and the crux of the argument was that he felt I had put hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of hours into developing this skill and was now recognized to be very good at it on a national stage and that I should feel good that I put in all that tough work and that it all paid off because very few people are willing to put that much work into becoming that good at a musical instrument. 
but m- the reason I didn't understand that is because I experienced that work as play, right? And I didn't choose to be built in such a fashion so that I experienced what looks from the outside like hard work as a kid experiences playing with toys, right? So I was trying to communicate that like all, you know, when you hear me doing these, you know, just hours of scales, that is pure fun for me. And I'm not sure why it's pure fun. Right? I didn't choose to, to be built in that way, but I can see for, for the other kids in band that I'm much better than practicing is drudgery to them. And they didn't choose to be that way either, because why would you? It, it's it's such a good point, but no one thinks this through. Like this is why the the I was cheeky in the beginning of this interview. You said, "Why did you get interested in psychology?" I was like, "How does anyone ever know why they're interested right. in anything?" The fact remains, like if I'm if I'm being bluntly honest, as an answer to that question, I have no clue what all the. I'm, I'm sure there were a whole bunch of factors. Well, there were a whole bunch of factors. Um, even going back to my great grandparents and their genetics and their proclivities, maybe even their own life experiences, which then caused their children to live in certain environments, which then, I mean, there's just (laughs) the whole laws of nature and you can, you can actually rewind it, rewind it all the way back to the big bang, probably um, all the different reasons. All I know and that I could explain to you as a story is, well, as a child and ever since I've, as I've long as I've lived, I've been interested in these questions of psychology. But I have no clue why at the age of five, I told my mom and grandma, you know, to stop arguing and to try to listen to each other. I, I, it's because there isn't a single reason cause. There's a million causes to, that led up to that moment you know, that are outside of my control. Yeah. You had a blog post in this vein about the, the nerdy dopamine pathway, I think. Is yeah. That- I didn't know if you were going to mention my luck article. Um, which was related to what I was just saying. I wrote an article on summarizing the latest research on luck, but but oh, also yeah, the nerdy no, I, dopamine one's an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the luck one. What did what did what were you saying in that article? Well, that article was interesting because um, researchers showed and did like a the, actually they were physicists and they did a really interesting model showing that um, luck plays a much much larger role in our life success accumulated over time. Lots of small things add up. Than we're aware of, and that would, and that, and that we attribute to talent. So that's specifically what they modeled in their in their system, where even gross talent differences, or even uh, minor talent differences, and how luck really played a, a much bigger role in um, multiplying those differences over the years. Um, so yeah, that's that's an interesting line of work that that's being done that, and I, I direct people to, to, to read that article for, for more explication. Yeah. This has always, uh, always been one of my, uh, like I said, I've always had this intuition since I was a kid that people don't build themselves. They don't choose to be who they are. They don't choose the set of instincts, the, the, the idiosyncratic set of character traits that they have. And I could just sense this you know, I, I've always felt lucky to be the kind of person that experiences certain kinds of hard work as intrinsically in, enjoyable, right? And I've, I've noticed other people who, who don't have that, who f- find it more difficult to focus on one thing or focus on developing a skill. And, and uh, in, in many ways, the world is, society is structured to favor people who really enjoy 
building skill sets that are hopefully ultimately marketable in some way. And obviously in other ways, my personality probably is, is unlucky if I focus on my weaknesses or my flaws, but I've always noticed and intuitively had sympathy for people who, who just don't, for whatever reason, are not built in that way. And I've always found it problematic that people talk as if everyone built their own minds, right? Yeah. That's the first time I ever heard you use the word problematic, by the way. But <laughs> <laughs> first time. But um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's very problematic. And I mean, just we, we should have more empathy for people, not only based on their environmental circumstances where they live, but but to just think broad, more broadly than that, like there's a lot of genetic luck of the draw that sucks, you know, that we don't talk about as openly and honestly among from individual to individual. I don't want to freak out. I'm not talking about the race <laughs> right now. That's not my point. But, you know, from individual to individual, there's obviously a lot of, uh, you know, genetics plays a huge role in, in, in creating a more uphill battle for certain things than others, you know, and uh, we're all yeah. complex you know, no one's perfect. So all of us have some things that make it easier for us to do and some things that are more a pale battle uh, that are completely, uh, uh, not completely, but can, if you control environment, there, those effects still exist. Um, but even we're, we're talking about something even deeper than that. Like we're talking about, there are causes that extend beyond your own existence and that we're totally unaware of that, you know, who, like who knows all the things that in some causal chain of the laws of universe of the universe caused us to really be interested or motivated by things. But as I, as I've argued, none of this means that we don't have potential for change. None of this means we, you know, ultimately my book transcend is, is, is I think hopeful uh, in the sense that not blindly optimistically hopeful, but hopeful in the sense that the more we can have awareness and, and even just like acceptance of what I'm just saying right now, the happier you can be, the more meaning you can find in your life, you know, to just actually accept that you're not the one in control here uh, for most of the time. Yeah. Th- there are some interesting paradoxes about free will that, that I experience. You know, for, for instance, if I actually, you know, I do believe that at, at some level determinism is true, right? Like the, we are in the world and in the same way that physics predicts how you know, the, the particles that make up this room would move. We just are made of those same kinds of particles, you know, law particles that can be understood and behave in a law-like manner. Right. And, but, but to actually believe that as to have that in the front of one's mind, as one goes through the world, I think would make one crazy, right? Like, there, there's just some sense in in which I, I feel I have to suspend disbelief in the same way that I have to do in, in order to enjoy a movie. I have to temporarily forget that it's, that it's not real, even though I, I know the moment the movie's over and I can dwell at any, any point during the movie about the fact that it's not real. I just have to put that, I have to sort of put it towards the back of my mind. And in that same way, I just, I put the, my my disbelief in the notion of free will towards the back of my mind for most of my waking moments until I need it for a particular situation, 
such as if I'm talking about free will or if I'm finding it difficult to forgive somebody who's done a bad thing. You know, it can be useful to remind oneself of, but it's very difficult to have at the forefront, you know, as an operating belief. Do you experience that as well or or not? I don't I don't have such a fatalistic <laughs> view uh, when, oh. I, when, when, when I think about it. Um, mm. I actually think there's something I've been trying, I want to, I want to write more about this so I can articulate my, my viewpoint on this even more, but I think there's actually something really beautiful about it. It, You know, it, of course there's this great mystery of all these things. uh, And, and even if it is determined, none of that means that it's not still really freaking interesting to watch how it's unfolding. You know, I find with myself, even if I'm fully aware of the, of, cause I, I do believe we, all the evidence in physics suggests we live in a determinist universe and quantum physics doesn't dis- disprove that. We can still predict based on initial states. So that's a, that's a straw man when people say, but what about quantum physics? No, you can still predict. So yeah, I think we do live in a determinist universe, but I think what's really kind of interesting is that um, the reality of the matter is no, no one, if, you, if you don't believe in God, no one knows how it's going to unfold. You know, so I'm on the edge of my seat to see what I'm going to say next. <laughs> I'm on the, I mean, I, I understand that it's all been determined. I get it. I get it. But it's kind of cool to be like, huh, like I was really crazy today. <laughs> like, you know, and then you sit on the cushion and you meditate deeply about that. And you and you kind of like review the story that as it's unfolding to me, it's kind of fun. It's that's like why it's fun to be alive. Yeah, well. I can agree with that in the sense that it would be very unfun if we just did know we if we knew right what was going to happen right? and no if one we does were, right if we were Laplace's demon and just knew the you know we we could actually think about the future states of the universe from the from the present state there would be no surprises no one knows y- yes but e- even there there's it's strange to me that in principle, it's possible to know, right? Even that fact alone I don't fills think so. me with a kind, a kind of eeriness. Well, because of like, like, like the Heisenberg like uncertainty principle, there's only so much information. It's actually not what well, you said in, th- in theory, but in practice, it actually is impossible to know all the factors. There is a limit to the number of information that you can actually um, include in your analysis. So right. actually in practicality, it, it might be impossible for any, mm. for, for us to know any, anything other than a God to know. And if you don't believe right. in a God, then, you know, like, like, like no one knows how naughty you're going to be tomorrow, except uh, you, when you do it <laughs> tomorrow. Right. <laughs> still, still like the notion that there's an, you know, in principle, there is an answer to the question of whether the human race will be alive in the year 2300, right? In, in just from the initial state of the universe right now, there is in principle an answer to that question. We are too ignorant to ever discover that answer. That's a very different universe to be living in than the one where, well, actually, nothing has been determined yet. It all depends on the on the on the choices we make, so forth. Right? There, there either is an answer to a question like that, or there's not. And the fact that there is, given the truth of determinism, still fills me fills me with this this strange, strange feeling. I agree. 
and, and, and I'll tell you uh, where I did get spooked out and uh, kind of chilling, a chilling feeling. Um, I had the physicist Sean Carroll on my podcast mm-hmm. and we really got into this because I was like, no, come on. I was like, give me the probability there's life after death. He's like 99% chance you're not going to live out of death. I was like, give me the probability there's no God. He's like 99% there's no God. I was like, <laughs> motherfucker, like, what are you, <laughs> what are you doing to me here? You know, as a physicist. But the thing is, um, you know, he, he's pretty sure. And physicists, like he said, it so matter of fact, he's like, and then at this point in the universe, this is what's going to happen. And then like, eventually all the stars will die out. And then eventually all the darkness will consume the whole, u- <laughs> like, like he was pretty confident. Like he, he physicists are actually able to predict what the universe is, is going to be like billions and billions, trillions of years from now. So I'm mean, I'm taking this even more of extreme than than even what you're saying, you know, about about what the human species. I'm saying we do kind of actually know uh, what what the planets will be, and to me that 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 there's there's something very um, it it does put you in an existential crisis if you think about it too much. I mean, and I've have experienced an existential crisis when I think about this too much, but then I try to think, well, okay. I'm going to enjoy the moment because <laughs> that's my only saving thing is return to the moment because your, your head really can go to a point of view and say, well, what's the point when even the whole, you know, all the planetary systems and all the stars will eventually die out trillions of years from now, you know, and even if that is true, you know, how does that impact how you live your own life? Mm. That's the question. Yeah. So I want to give people something, some ideas of how to improve their own well-being coming out of this podcast. So what do you what would you say to someone who is just boilerplate much less happy than they would like to be in life? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I tend to view happiness as a unworthy goal in itself. Um, I tend to view happiness as an epiphenomenon of growth. So usually when people aren't happy, it's because they're not having their basic needs met. They're not, um, their need for social connection, their need for meaning, uh, their need for, uh, safety, need for connection. Connection is a really, really big one. Um, probably the, the best predictor of happiness is the extent to which you have high quality relationships in your life. And by the way, high quality relationships are not the same thing as the number of like in groups you have in your life, you know? Um, uh, I've distinguished in my book between the need for belonging and the need for intimacy or relatedness. And there are different, there are different things. And um, one of the best predictors of happiness really is a sense of relatedness with even just a few people in your life where, you know, you both, um, really accept each other and, you know, kind of, uh, admire each other and, uh, and, and can be very honest and, and trusting with each other. Um, it's a big predictor of happiness. And unfortunately during this, this pandemic, um, you have a lot of people that, that aren't happy, uh, will have feeling low life satisfaction because that need isn't being met. One of the strange paradoxes of, of mental health during the pandemic is that things like depression and anxiety are predictably up, but suicides are unpredictably down. And that's a, that's a paradox that fascinates me, right? Because Naively, you would just expect people to be killing themselves more often. I, I, are you sure about that statistic, though? Well, that, that yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm not super sure, but I read that on uh, in an article yesterday. Hmm. Because I've seen yeah. different 
I've seen in certain age groups, especially young mm-hmm. people, suicide is on the, is incre- was increased during COVID. Oh, okay. Well, in any event, yeah, I think, uh, to the extent that that data is accurate, okay, there could be something about, it's possible that a global crisis doesn't actually lead to people killing themselves more, even if it makes them more miserable. Right. There's, there's this phenomenon of people not actually killing themselves very often in, in extremely tense situations when you almost feel as if you're surviving from one day to the next, such as in a, in a concentration camp or something. Yeah. You don't actually see many people committing suicide, at least not, even though everyone is miserable. And I'm curious if, if that seems like a plausible explanation of that. What, what are you positing as the explanation? That in, in situations of crisis, when people are dealing with enormous amounts of stress, one can be in a, a mode of survival, which damages one's mental health, but does not actually lead to an increase in, in suicide. This stuff is, right. is, is super, super uh, uh, complex and multi-determined um, because, you know, you have a lot of people who are living in, in seemingly they have everything in the world and they commit suicide, you know, like rich people, you know, or who, who get so bored with life, they commit suicide. And, um, and, and sometimes be having discord and drama is what gives you your meaning in, in your life or gives you your purpose in life. This, this stuff is so complicated in that way because humans are so messy and complex. Um, one could make the case in certain circumstances of such feelings of um, discord is that um, that discord gives you a purpose that maybe you never had before, you know, mm-hmm. even if the purpose is just to overcome it, you know? Right. So humans are messy. I've often felt, you know, in the few instances of my life where people close to me had medical emergencies, hmm. right? My ex-girlfriend had a medical emergency where I just, for three or four days, I just had to be her full-time nurse. Right. And there was exactly one thing to think about in life, which was helping her get through this medical emergency. Right. There was no, no other thoughts were important or worth having. Is she okay? And, oh yeah, she's fine now. This was, this was, you know, two years ago. Is this but, the, um, is the one I met at Friedman's? Yes. Yes, actually. Yeah. But what I noticed about my own mind in the, in that situation was not unhappiness, right? There was stress, but I was not, I was actually far less anxious and stressed than I would be on a ordinary day, Mm. right? There, there's something clarifying about having only one thing to think about, even if that thing is horrible. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a deep truth there. There, there definitely is. Abraham Maslow, uh, who I no, I know I mention him like every five sentences, but he had a really interesting unpublished essay, which I discovered um, kind of making the case that if people didn't have drama to fight for, they would kill themselves. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting kind of framing of that situation. Yeah, definitely. And it, you know, I, I always, or I used to be puzzled when 
soldiers who come home from war would describe their time in war as the best time in their lives, especially people who had best friends die. You know, I'm watching a movie like Platoon or any war movie and thinking this looks like absolute hell. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm so grateful that I live in a time where young men can no longer be drafted and made to do that kind of horrible work. Yet reflecting on this aspect of human psychology, this, the, the possibility of being strangely at peace when, one, when you have only one problem to think about, it makes perfect sense of why veterans feel nostalgic for, for the, you know, this time when the only thing they had to think about was not dying and not letting their friends die, basically. Yeah. There's a lot of truth. There's, there's something there. I mean, about our, our meaning and the way we, we get our sources of meaning and how meaning leads to happiness. I mean, it's interesting because when you look at happiness questionnaires or life satisfaction questionnaires, the best predictors um, are not hedonistic things. Mm. That's just a myth. That's just a, like when you actually look at these positive psychology questionnaires and you say, okay, what in regression analyses are the best predictors of of happiness uh, or feelings of life's uh, a sense of life satisfaction. Um, hedonism is very low on the list. Um, it tends to be situations that has given us some uh, real sense of meaning. And some of these things like you're describing can give us a real sense of meaning. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, I'll let you go. But before, but first, can you tell my audience where to find your work and what you're working on now? Thanks, Coleman. Um, so Transcend my, is my newest, my latest book, The New Science of Self-Actualization. Transcend the New Science of Self-Actualization. You can get that uh, wherever books are sold. Um, I host a podcast that uh, you've been on, uh, uh, that Coleman has been on, not the listener, <laughs> probably not the listener, <laughs> but Coleman's been on, called The Psychology Podcast. I'm really trying to get as many interesting people on that show, even if I disagree with them, you know, to kind of just, I want something I want to do, Coleman, which you mm-hmm. do really well, is I want to like normalize talking to people that we may disagree with. That's what I want to, I want to do more of that. I want to normalize that, like make that just like, Renormalize. Oh, I think it re- used to be normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. So I try to really, I try to really hope to do that with that uh, podcast. And uh, yeah, if you're a Columbia student, take my course, the science of living well, or, or even if you want to TA it, <laughs> email me, I'm looking for TAs. Um, yeah. I just really appreciate being on your show today, Coleman. And I, and I look forward to our next Friedman's lunch. Yes, absolutely. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.